One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Anuradha Roy, author of three novels, including The Folded Earth, An Atlas of Impossible Longing, and Sleeping on Jupiter, which was nominated for the Man Booker Prize in 2015. Sleeping on Jupiter is told in multiple points of view and centers around a seaside temple town in India, where most of the characters have come for specific reasons. We began the interview with Roy describing the novel's plot. The book actually uh, brings together a few different characters on a beach in India, in a temple town, uh, over a period of five days, during which each of them either experiences things to do with their past or things that change them in some way in the present so that they are left quite transformed by all that happens to them during those five days. And the central character among the group that we meet on that beach is a young girl who has come back to India after a very long time away But she lived here as a child. She lived here till she was about seven. And at that time, she was a refugee from a civil war in a neighboring country or somewhere nearby. It's not specified. And she had experiences that were traumatic here. And she has come back actually in a bid to kind of excavate the past or come to terms with it. So that's what her five days are about. Is Jarmuli a real town? It's not. It's a fictionalized town. And I've always liked in my work making up places. You know, just as making up characters pleases me, making up the places is quite important for me. In a sense, it's a kind of, it's not an amalgam of different places, but I feel 
uh, you know, the sense of creating a place in which I have every element in my head very clear. The town is exactly as it needs to be for my book in my head. And then I don't go about switching streets as it pleases me or whatever. But there comes a point when that town becomes very real for me just as the people become very real. And that's, but although both are fiction, of course. One of the things I found with your characters, so basically you switch point of view often in the novel. We get Nomi, this main character, who's come back to India to sort of, as you say, excavate her past. But then Mm -hmm. in the present when she's there, there there's several characters we have... um, Badal, he lost his father, lives with his uncle, and he's a guide through the temples. And he's in love with a young boy who hangs out at the beach. You have these three women, Guri, Latika, and Vidya, who come, they're on a, their own sort of pilgrimage to the beach. And then you have someone who's helping Nomi, Siraj. He is sort of helping her on her tour. And they all come to the page was such a sense of loss, all of them, some of the women less than others. But was that mm-hmm. something that you were really trying to think about what they carried with them before they even got there? Um, yes, I know what you mean. That, in fact, the tea seller who is on the beach, who uh, sells tea off a cart and has actually lost everything. We don't know what he's lost because he won't tell us. But through the songs that he sings, we know it's a whole different way of living and life. It's it's there in most of my work. It's there in my other two books as well. And it's a bit it's a bit bothersome for me when I try to psychoanalyze myself. So I won't. But I think this sense of vanished landscapes and vanished parts of yourself uh, really interest me when I'm writing. And uh, in this book, it was really as if there were all these people with fragments of themselves that were gone, which they were either trying to find on that beach or they were trying to find a different version of themselves, which would be And that's where the title comes from as well, that many of them are looking for an alternate reality, something that they can move to in a sense, not physically, but mentally as well. So the title Sleeping on Jupiter comes from a a specific scene when Badal has sort of realized that he can't be with this man, this young man he wants to be with, and he doesn't want to be living in his uncle's anymore. Can you talk about that scene and how maybe that line came about and then your decision to use it as the title? Actually, when I wrote that scene, and uh, Badal is this temple guide who has grown up not as an orphan, but has lost his father very early in life and has then has quite a rough childhood and so on. And he's always dreamed of some other place, which could be a real geographical place. He dreams of places like Zanzibar and so on, which are far away and he'll never go there. He's never even left the town. But in his mind, he travels to all these places. And in his mind, he wonders what it would be like to sleep under the sky of Jupiter, because Jupiter has 16 moons 
and he wonders whether each of those moons is in a different phase at a different time or do you see 16 full moons all together and so on and this becomes a kind of metaphor for him of a, a world where he will not be crushed in the way he just has been because he's been sort of left broken hearted by this boy he's in love with how did you know that was going to be the title well after this passage came about then i there are things that you perceive about your own characters later either somebody else points them out to you or you through a process of both coming closer to them and acquiring some distance from them as the book progresses you understand that oh you know this is how each of them it's not as though i started out writing let me write about loss or let me write about violence it doesn't start out like that at all because it starts out when you are thinking about some a set of people or one person and it is it was only when i reached this point where i was looking at badal sitting with his back to the sea because that's how he likes to sit and dreaming of a different reality that i understood that each of the characters in different ways was doing the same thing and so it presented itself as the title The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season 2 of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season 2 of The Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season 2 wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anuradha Roy, author of Sleeping on Jupiter, which was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Our interview was recorded on Skype. So you said that you don't necessarily start off thinking about you know loss is a theme or something big you start thinking about these characters but there's some very specific things that this book is interested in so were there certain questions that were nagging at you that brought these characters to life to begin with like questions that you had to get on the page i really did start with the question of friendship it that was what was interesting me at that point and it was these three old women who were setting off on the first vacation of their life without their families just together as friends but when i started writing about these women and they see on a beach this girl standing on her own and i ended that at that point and i kept thinking about this girl and the girl's past seemed for some reason to me to be that it had to be violent now i don't know it's obviously has to do with where you live how you live the things you see around you that seep in 
to your writing whether you want it or not so i suppose i had been very troubled by the kind of violence daily violence you see women facing around us in india here so maybe that fed into the book not necessarily as a theme i wanted to explore but the character became someone who had experienced a great deal of violence so basically your main character nomi she mm-hmm. as you said there was civil strife where she lived and she got separated from her family and she lost her mom and her dad and her brother yeah. and she mm-hmm. ends up in this ashram that has uh, a guru a guruji there who is the one that people follow. And it seems from your descriptions, there's white people there as well as the local Indians. And it turns out that this guru mistreats the girls and especially Mm -hmm. we're focused on Nomi's story in terms of sexual predation and physical violence. And it's interesting because you've we've all read stories about gurus mm-hmm. who were false gods and weren't what people thought. But why did you choose this setting and this trope, this idea of being in an ashram where you think you're safe and loved and with a godlike figure? I think it's partly uh, to do with the dominance of religion in India today which wasn't the case when I was growing up. I've always experienced religion and the practice of Hinduism particularly as uh, something quite gentle and beautiful and private. It used to be something that was to do with what you did in your family. Religious practices were, of course, there were great communal festivals and so on, but most of it had to do with Uh, family and home and personal choices. But now the whole way in which religion is practiced and thrust upon people in a sense has altered India and the whole practice of religion has become far more aggressive and, you know, threateningly, viciously aggressive in a a way that, uh, that really... leaves people who are genuinely devout and spiritual feeling powerless and uh, harassed in a sense. So the book is, one of the central themes about in the book is how religion impacts different lives. And it, so there is this temple priest, there are the women who come as pilgrims, there is Suraj, the photographer, who is a complete he doesn't react to anything at all in terms of religion or God or spirituality. And then there's this girl who has experienced uh, violence in a place which was meant to be sanctuary. And that's why I chose the ashram. It was really to be a kind of, you know, the different facets of a prism, if you like. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting about the violence that you write about, not just the violence against Nomi that happens in the ashram, which is very a particular sort of violence. It's it's a personal yeah. violence. There's Siraj, who has this violence that's sort of brewing under the surface, mm-hmm. and you don't yeah. really know what's going to set him off. And Mm -hmm. there's a scene where he, I don't know, it's spurned by a disagreement or just an uncomfortable conversation with his wife that soon soon will leave him. And he, there's a stray dog and he 
beats yeah. this dog and it's mm. really difficult to read yeah, yeah. and it was very difficult for me to write because i i adore dogs and i have three i've always had dogs so it really was a way for me to you know, when you read uh, one of the things in that uh, book by jm quetzi disgrace it ends with the man working in that kind of dog not a pound but i think he cremates dogs or something like that and it was meant to be his redemption or some such thing and in my case this beating of the dog was really i felt a way of his moment of absolute blackness despair and you know he could not sink any further than that he thought you know you you mentioned about how you see religion changing and the violence against women and in this case it was a violence against an animal I mean, it's obviously a result of feeling so helpless that there's nothing else you can do and you can't, the feelings you can't contain, so you have to do something mm-hmm. physically. I mean, do you think that's also something you're trying to say about the culture of your country? I think it's definitely true that India has become, over the past some years, I can't put a, you know, I'm not a historian or an anthropologist, but it's become an incredibly violent place in terms of just daily daily unpredictability and danger to you to your families to everybody and the the levels of violence you see around here which are accepted as routine against children against the marginalized it's unbelievable so i think when you live in this situation and you are continuously surrounded by this it's all around you and you are of course a part of you feeling both threatened as well as a part of the system that is not able to do anything to help then it feeds into your work that's how it is i'm sure that went into this book this feeling of absolute helplessness when you can see around you that things are just just desperately Uh, violent around you in the villages what you read not even what you see but what you read every day or what you learn of from the work your friends are doing in various places that's that all that comes into sit and roost in some part of your head i guess you're listening to first draft a dialogue on writing produced at aspen public radio i'm mitzi rapkin my guest is anuradha roy author of Sleeping on Jupiter, which was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Once you've been a country that has been colonized and you've seen the violence, do you think it's it like gets in your DNA almost and that you're writing about these loss, this individual loss, but it also stands for the loss of your country and that you, in some ways you can't avoid that? I don't know uh, you know <laughs> when I try to look in a kind of analytical way about my own writing I feel quite inadequate because I feel as if my in a sense there's also a fear that if you uh, think too hard about what you are writing in this kind of way which is a much more intelligent acute perceptive critical way then you will lose that instinctive sense of you know this is you i i don't always 
I don't mean to say that I'm writing in a stupid way. It isn't that. But it, there's a sense in which I feel I have to hold on to something that I can't quite explain. And this, what you say about colonialism and so on, it's such a wonderful and interesting idea. But it hasn't occurred to me about my own work before at all. But it, it's something that I'll think about now. And maybe it, I'll think, oh, that may be so. But that's not how it happened. Because Nomi is, is there to see her past and these three women are going and they've lived most of their lives already, there's a strong element of, of memory in these characters. Yep. And I'm just wondering about the link between memory and identity or your thoughts about the memories that these characters have and what role that plays. Well, in this book, there's particularly, there's one woman who is even losing her memory. One of the three women is at the first stages of dementia. They don't yet know it, but she is starting to lose her grip on things. And when I was writing Nomi, because the things she remembers are from when she was seven. So I really had to think very hard about what would you remember. And some things that you remember very, very vividly are not things you've experienced. They may be things people have told you and you take them to be the truth. And at that time, I read a, a bit of a memoir by Oliver Sacks in which he described how he uh, told someone or wrote to someone that he had experienced a bomb falling in London during the World War. And uh, he described how it fell in his garden, or etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then his brother told him later that you weren't even in London at that time. We were both at school, and someone wrote a letter to us to say this is what happened. So I was very interested in how things you might have read or been told can become a part of you, so that your mind creates a memory that is so vivid that you are convinced you've experienced it. So the book does explore in different ways how memory either fails you or creates itself, how completely unreliable it is. For Nomi, maybe coming back to this place is a desire to both search for love and maybe feel the pain she she was a little bit numb to because she ended up mm -hmm. going to Norway and being adopted and living her, mm -hmm. her adult life there. And so there's a reason why, except for maybe Siraj because he was just called there for work. Everyone mm -hmm. else is there very deliberately. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering about the role of place, this town you created, and, and the ocean. It's funny that I have, uh, you know, this, my second book was set in the mountains. And the first book was set in a kind of inland area of India with lots of mines and a plateau. So, because a book is somewhere that you live in for the years that you write it, and you have to be interested and happy in that place. You can't be happy. Happy is an idiotic word to use, but you have to be engaged and interested in that place for the two or three years it's going to take you to write that book. And with this book, I really felt as if I wanted the ocean to be there in my head the whole time. And the ocean in this book is really like an amalgam of the many seasides or oceans I've seen. And I had a lot of fun writing one little section which Nomi 
in which Nomi describes many the many oceans that she's dipped her toe in or sat beside because she goes from ocean to ocean looking for her mother because she is not sure which sea it was where she was abandoned. So the whole town, the creation of the town, the town is a temple town, which is peculiar. I don't know. It, I suppose in Western terms, it would be a bit like the Vatican in the sense that the whole economy of the town depends on the temple and on the pilgrims and the business around the great temple. And then there's the sea, which brings an element of absolute, uh, you know, unpredictability, nature, beauty, something quite different from the organizedness of religion in a temple town. So that's how the place began in my head. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anuradha Roy author of Sleeping on Jupiter, which was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Most of the main characters in your book mm-hmm. had someone. You had the three women that had each other. You had Nomi and Suraj who had each other for better or worse. But you have this character, Badal, who mm-hmm. who I felt like more than anything was mm-hmm. really trapped inside of his head. He didn't yeah. have anyone to express what was going on with him. Can you talk about this character a little bit? Again, he he was someone who lost his father, lived with his uncle, who was kind of manipulative, and had this forbidden love for this young boy at the beach. Badal actually, uh, he he was one of my earliest and most favorite characters in the book, and I found him quite heartbreaking uh, to write. Because he's such an incredibly solitary character, as you say, and he has absolutely no one that he uh, can. It's it's not a question of no one to talk to, but he feels very, very solitary in the sense that this temple about which he has extremely strong uh, sacred feelings where he has been from childhood, he feels those beliefs threatened by his love for this boy so his two great passions one of one which is god and one which is this boy uh, he thinks oppose each other which he thinks because of you know many uh, years of just restrictions on how you think about love and so on which is a complete contrast to what he sees depicted around him on the walls of the temples, which have erotic sculpture depicting almost every kind of relationship. So he is a deeply anguished, conflicted, uh, solitary person who, in the end, I mean, because of because of his heartbreak over this boy, he really is, as you say, the most most alone of the lot. And it's in him that you see the kind of conflict uh, kind of exemplified between religious belief and your own natural emotions and love for someone. In his case, it's this boy. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Oh, um, okay, let me. I'll, I'll read to you from The Sound of the Mountain. This is a book by a Japanese writer. His name is Yasunari Kawabata. He won the Nobel Prize for literature. I've, I really love his work because it's, 
it's very profound without almost nothing dramatic appears to happen but huge transformations are taking place all the time and in this passage i'm going to read there's an old man who senses his own mortality when he thinks he can hear a mountain so this is when he is woken up i think early in the morning though august had only begun autumn insects were already singing he thought he could detect a dripping of dew from leaf to leaf then he heard the sound of the mountain it was a windless night the moon was near full but in the moist sultry air the fringe of trees that outlined the mountain was blurred they were motionless however not a leaf on the fern by the veranda was stirring in these mountain recesses of kamakura the sea could sometimes be heard at night shingo wondered if he might have heard the sound of the sea but no it was the mountain it was like wind far away but with a depth like a rumbling of the earth thinking that it might be in himself a ringing in his ears shingo shook his head the sound stopped and he was suddenly afraid a chill passed over him as if he had been notified that death was approaching he wanted to question himself calmly and deliberately to ask whether it had been the sound of the wind or the sound of the sea or a sound in his ears but he had heard no such sound he was sure he had heard the mountain do you want to say anything else about it i just go back to this book on and off to get a recharge i open it at any point that uh, you know like people used to open the bible and say this will give me wisdom or whatever and i feel as if i feel a sense of just fullness when i read even a page from this book can you read something that you wrote maybe it was something that was really difficult to get on the page or something that changed a lot from the first draft or something that you feel you really succeeded at i'll read a bit which came in very late into the book because at that time i was thinking of this character of suraj the photographer and uh, he was somehow not coming together fully in my head for quite a long time i struggled with him because i didn't want him to be some kind of cartoon villain at all and thinking about through you know what happened in his life and so on brought me to this passage which came quite late in the writing of the book where he goes out in the morning for a swim and almost drowns and is fished out by some fishermen and these fishermen uh, I, i'll read you just a small paragraph where the fishermen who have fished out suraj are cursing their luck basically at having fished him out Suraj sat gasping for breath listening to the fishermen cackling about their lousy luck tossing insults and jokes back and forth after an entire night at sea all they had caught was a man what's a man good for eh can you eat a man can you fry it and feed it to your children now a fish you can use all parts of a fish from its head to its fins to its tail you can chew on its spine you can fry its roux or eat your rice with its oil the tiny ones you can eat whole heads bones eyes and all fried to a salty crunch 
Fish can swim and sing and fly. They can even kill women, kill men. If not fish, a woman was a better find. If you fish a woman out of the water, you can lay her or sell her or set her to work. But what use is a man? If you had netted a man, you might as well throw him back in. And can you tell me more about that? Well, it, I, uh, in this passage, Suraj has gone out for this early morning swim. And as you say, the sea there is quite powerful. And when he feels himself being tugged away underwater, he suddenly feels as if the whole business of being a failure at work and in his personal life and all kinds of things made it easier for him to just give in and sink. And as he begins to sink, he, of course, struggles and bursts out of the water and tries to swim and flounders. And then these fishermen come and pick him up. And I feel that this passage where they talk about it, it's really an inversion of a worldview where in the normal Indian world, the man is the top of the heap. And, you know, what could be better than having a son or being a man or and all of that. But in this view of the world where they were waiting to catch fish and unfortunately their view of the woman more or less uh, typifies what many people think of women in India as something useful, something saleable, something, you know, you can set to work or whatever. So I found that writing this inversion of the world was an interesting thing to do. Where do you write? At a desk, <laughs> facing a wall. I don't look out of the window because I'm I would just be distracted by the... So although there are these beautiful forests and mountains, I put my desk right opposite a wall. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I make pots. I, I make some, you know, ceramic pots. I work on a wheel now and then, or I will just go for a long walk or with the dogs. These are my two ways of getting away. Using my hands or being with the dogs, I think... It's just completely unconnected to work, uh, to my work, which is writing both those things. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It's Rukun Advani, my husband, but he's also a publisher. I mean, he publishes um, academic books. We run a press together. So he's a very, very good reader of everybody's work, including mine. And he himself had written a novel long ago, which was published by Faber, which was called Beethoven Among the Cows, and he reads a lot of fiction. So he's thought about the writing and reading of fiction enough to make him a very good reader for my work. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, the f my first book got rejected many times, 16, 17 rejections. And I used to feel really downcast because b before you've published anything, you find it very hard to take. You have no sense of where your work is heading. But I think I realized right then that you should only be writing if it doesn't essentially, it's not that it doesn't matter to you whether it gets published or not, but it you would should have the feeling that you would write it anyway, whether it got published or not. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word? My favorite word, I thought about... Uh, I think I like 
the word gloomy which i have never managed to use i so far but i love words like twilight and dusk and glooming which are about a time of day which is somewhere in between and where nothing can be seen and yet everything is clearer somehow You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Anuradha Roy, author of Sleeping on Jupiter. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.